Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing Parasite, one of the most highly acclaimed movies of the season. Directed and co-written by Bong Joon-ho with co-writer Han Jin-won, it is currently nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. Featuring an ensemble cast, including South Korean megastar Song Kang-ho, it is about a poor Korean family, the Kims, who become embroiled in the lives of a wealthy family, the Parks. This is one of those movies where everyone's very keen about spoiler warnings. So yeah, we're just going to be talking about spoilers all the way through this podcast. So, you know, either watch the movie or you will have to be a person who doesn't care about spoilers. Enough time has passed. (laughs) Well, it came out in the US. Yeah. And... The beginning of October. We're discussing it now because it is only just now coming out in the United Kingdom and it seemed like a good time to talk about it because it just got nominated for six Oscars, I believe. And unlike the other movies that have a million nominations, this one's actually good. It's very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll be doing a full Oscar sort of preview episode uh, in a couple weeks, but we'll be getting into that a little bit this week. Uh, This is definitely the best movie that got nominated for stuff this year. It is one of the very best films of the year, period. And uh, I saw it at the New York Film Festival and then went again when it was in theaters. And um, it fucking rolls. It's so good. Really great film. (laughs) Really good. I mean, before we get into the details of what actually happens in the movie, I think talking about the phenomenon surrounding it a little bit would be productive and kind of interesting. This is... uh, South Korean film that has made, I think, over $20 million in the United States to date, which is like extremely unusual. And it will make more now because of the Oscar nominations that it received. Especially because it's not like, it, it, it's a drama. Yes. Because, I mean, I wouldn't be like, let's do a poll of to see which Korean films Americans have heard of. But like films that have really, you know, kicked off. Just off the top of my head, I would say probably the most watched like Korean film in America's probably old boy. And that is the type of film which often catches on in the US because it's a dialogue light action movie. Um, and this is like the opposite of this. This is like a social satire about capitalism. And it turns out that in 2019 and 2020, people really want to watch a really good, smart, entertaining, horrifying film about capitalism. Yes. Well, it was kind of marketed a little bit as a horror movie, which it is not. But it also just completely hit the zeitgeist in a really impressive way. I mean, obviously $20 million is not $100 million. Like, I live in New York, so I have a distorted perspective of this. But, like, my younger brother, who's 22 and doesn't like movies, like, he doesn't go to the movies ever. I told him, you should go see this. And he actually listened to me and went. And he was like, yeah, I've heard it's good. I'll go. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, this never happens. And he thought it was amazing. Like, because it's just so good that you can't resist it. But it also was going and seeing it. I mean, seeing it at the press screening at NIF was really fun. Like, it's impossible to not get wrapped up in this film. The critics were super into it. But I then went and saw it at just a normal movie theater with a friend of mine. And it did have a little bit of the experience of seeing a horror movie in the sense that the audience was just like 
so enthusiastic. My friend who I go to see horror movies with often was like grabbing my arm. was like, oh my God, what's happening? People were screaming. And so it has that sense of infectious, just like, I mean, it's a bit oh like God. Gone Girl, right? It's that type of thriller yeah. where there's so many reactions, but they're not cheap reactions. And it's really, there's yes. lots of really smart reveals and that kind of thing. And there is actually a point kind of halfway through, which is literally just a horror movie moment where they kind of go into a new location and it's really spooky and you're like oh god what's gonna happen is it gonna turn out like halfway through this film there's vampires or something and you know when the film was first announced and it was called Parasite my immediate assumption was that it was gonna be a monster movie um and then I kind of read like I just literally remember reading like a paragraph down and being like oh it's a drama about a family okay (laughs) but it's because like Bong Joon-ho has done a lot of sort of cross genre films you know And also part of the reason why this film has been able to catch on so quickly overseas is because over the past like five years of his career, Bong Joon-ho has sort of built up more and more of an international audience because his last two films were international films. Um, So the last one was Ogja, which had a Netflix release. And that was, um, it was a very kind of like quirky movie. It was technically a monster film. It had a child protagonist. It was sort of comedic. It had Jake Gyllenhaal and Tilda Swinton in it but it wasn't as good as Snowpiercer which was like his first like big international movie in 2013 we have a podcast episode on that um I love Snowpiercer it stars Chris Evans at the time its release got screwed up by Harvey Weinstein for reasons that we explained at length in that episode but um this is sort of like him returning to making Korean language movies or fully Korean language it's taking themes he's discussed in a lot of his other work and really sort of coalescing them in a really tight and interesting way with much more sort of subtle genre influences. It's not sci-fi, you know, and I think a lot of people probably went into this if they weren't aware of the buzz, maybe wondering, is there going to be some kind of sci-fi or horror element? And the answer is tonally horror, but supernatural, no, it's like really realistic. Yeah, well, it does a good job of having a sort of heightened surreal sense of what's happening like technically this could happen but probably not right yeah. like low low chance yeah. and the comedy is very kind of absurd but not to a degree that feels slapsticky at all it's just that the whole situation is kind of bizarre so it has this slightly off quality but it is also very grounded in the real world and the consequences for the characters feel very real um and the family that doesn't have any money the dire straits that they are in financially, he depicts in a way that you understand how desperate they are. Like it feels like real extremis. And so you get what's happening emotionally in the movie in a way that makes it feel important as opposed to just a sort of romp being like, oh, some crazy stuff is happening. Like how weird. So it's a really good balance of something that's entertaining and also feels really emotionally affecting, which is why it's been so successful because that's uncommon. You don't normally get that in a movie. Yeah. I mean, for sure, especially like films that are explicitly about poverty. Generally, you're either going to get something that's really gritty or it's something that's maudlin and ends up being really uplifting. For like a mainstream movie, you'd get that movie where Will Smith is homeless with his kid and then inspiringly becomes really rich because he like pulled himself up by his bootstraps and then if you're doing like a more indie film it's going to be like a really dark story about sort of the failure of the American dream and obviously I'm making like sweeping generalizations here and the reason why this movie is good is because Bong Joon-ho is like a unique amazing talent but also it is thematically 
quite different from most other films I've seen that are kind of tackling these ideas. And that's partly because like there's so much humor and partly because it's actually allowed to be edgy in ways that don't kind of talk down to the audience's intelligence and don't just sort of really linger on like, isn't it really awful to be poor all the time? Because it's like, that is an evident part of the setting, but it's not like, that's not like the whole kind of point, you know? This film is sort of split into two parts almost. The first section is sort of introducing the main family, which is two middle-aged parents and their young adult children. So they're sort of college age and this family are really poor. They live in a half basement apartment. So it's like part of the basement is just above street level. So they have some sunlight, but mostly it's underground. And uh, the only job they have is like folding pizza boxes. And you get the impression of this really sort of tight knit family. Um, and they all have quite dark senses of humor and they have good relationships, and but they have like no kind of financial prospects. But the son is friends with a richer guy who's gone to college and this guy asks him to take on a tutoring job teaching a teenage girl English for this rich family. And that becomes the son's kind of in into this family. He becomes the tutor basically by sort of scamming his way in by pretending to be this person who is really great at English and has lived in America. And then one by one, the other members of the family managed to inveigle themselves jobs working in this very wealthy household and they effectively like move into this house. So it's like a rich young family, their teenage daughter and like a young son who's like eight or nine. And it's this beautiful, gorgeously designed, walled off secluded house in the city. And of like the central family, the Kims, the father becomes their driver, the mother becomes their housekeeper the daughter becomes an art therapist for the little son and the son kind of remains on as the tutor. And it's this kind of funny, satirical crime caper almost where it's all about them sort of scamming these jobs and they do it in like really smart ways that utilize the skills they have and sort of highlight the fact that even if you have loads of useful survival skills, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to get like quote unquote honest work. Uh, But then sort of the turning point comes about halfway through when one of the characters has reason to go down into the basement and they discover that there is a man who has been living in the basement who is the husband of the housekeeper who basically they ejected in order for the mother to steal this woman's housekeeping job. And it turns out that she's just been keeping him in the basement for years because he's fleeing He's fleeing loan sharks, basically. And then the second half of the film gets kind of progressively darker as the situation unravels. You know, there's much more tension because they're concerned about um, being caught. And also there's concerns about they're like kind of going stuck in this sort of dual blackmail relationship with this couple that were living in the basement. And then it sort of ends in a very violent finale. Bloody murder at like a garden party. Yeah, it's quite hard to summarise, but that is kind of basically how the story plays out. And it kind of avoids making really obvious commentary, like about which characters would be allegedly in the right or the wrong. And the title has this sort of multiple meaning where it's like, who is really the parasite here? There's various people who are parasitic off the rich family's wealth, but also the rich family are parasites off society as a whole. And the kind of whole argument is that rich people can't exist without people, other people being poor and suffering. Well, what's so unbelievably smart about the movie, I mean, it's all smart, of course, is that 
you go in sort of expecting to be sympathetic to the poor family, which, I mean, you certainly are throughout up to a point. It's not like he demonizes them, but you meet the the mother of the rich family right at the beginning because she's the one who's hiring the tutors. She's hilarious. Oh my God. So funny. She's just dumb. She's not a very intelligent person, but clearly feels like, you know, she has to be kind of impressive and has to have her children do all these impressive things. She's married to this wealthy, important man, and there's all this stuff going on. And so it's not like he's massively cruel to her when he introduces her, but she's clearly a laughable person. I mean, she's kind of a trophy wife and like her whole job is just to be a trophy wife, but she's literally not doing anything because she has all these staffers to like do all her housework and childcare and that sort of thing. And she's clearly really anxious and her husband is like not terrible, but it's not like they have this amazing equal partnership where they really value each other's judgment, which the kind of contrast is that the couple from the poor family really do. Although, I mean, he's kind of shitty to his wife also but yeah. in a different way yeah but anyway you start out and you're definitely sort of like oh these idiot rich people right like police they live in this outrageously beautiful house they're super hot like they have these kids who they don't pay any attention to like it's just this sort of absurd situation and it's fun to watch people grift as we know from hustlers right like it's fun to watch these people kind of get one over on them and then the movie keeps going. And you're like, I think they might be horrible. <laughs> like, I don't know about this. They seem kind of terrible, too. And the point at which they force out the housekeeper who's been there for forever and is also a working class person is when it really kind of starts to shift, I think, because she is the victim of this scheme and she has done nothing wrong at all and they just don't give a shit and the longer the movie goes on the more you sense that there isn't really anyone to be that sympathetic to here but he's such a humane director that he's doesn't make any of them cartoonish villains either yeah i mean halfway through they have this conversation with the kim family where they're kind of discussing the park family the rich family and they're Basically, one of the characters says to the other, like, oh, well, they're actually quite nice. I'm starting to feel a bit guilty about this. And the point one of the other characters makes, I think the mother, is that, of course, they can be nice because they can afford to be nice. Like, when you're rich, you have this cushion of niceness in your life, whereas if you're completely desperate, you have to be more ruthless. And the idea of these rich characters being super superficially nice kind of comes in in the final act where during this grand guignol kind of scene with all these people being stabbed, it's very obvious that like the rich father just doesn't give a shit about any any of the poor people. He's just like doesn't care if these people get stabbed because he's only looking out for himself and there's like no real empathy at all. And it's sort of highlighted by there's this underlying kind of starts off as a joke and like but it's a really unpleasant joke that you can tell is really hurting one of the characters that um Song Kang Ho the dad character like smells and it's this sort of idea that like he can't get clean because he lives in a sub-basement apartment and the two rich characters like talk about it in front of him when they don't realize he's listening and kind of right in this final scene like he snaps because 
there's this final reminder that this guy like doesn't like the way he smells and it's just like really upsetting and shows kind of how thoughtless the situation is but also kind of how complex all the different layers of sort of economic inequality and microaggressions and that sort of thing all exist at the same time and kind of like you were saying with Bong Joon-ho being this really humane director one of the things that he does in a lot of his movies that I've seen is kind of avoid the idea of there being this sort of heroic figure who's successfully managed to overcome their circumstances because that's sort of the reason why Snowpiercer feels so subversive is because for most of the film it kind of feels a lot like a lot of mainstream American blockbusters that at least nominally tackle this kind of theme like inequality where you have someone who like launches a revolution and fights back against the oppressor and eventually like survives and wins or like sacrifice themselves and still wins and that isn't really what happens in Snowpiercer even though that's mostly how it's structured and it's more about how every single person involved is trapped in this system and is everyone is kind of symbiotically making the world worse for each other including the people who like don't have any power because that's the only choice you have and that is the whole framework of this film is about that idea in like a much more tightly written and sophisticated way. Right. And I mean, I think Snowpiercer is a fantastic movie, as I said on that podcast. And rewatching it this year, I was like, wow, this movie is incredible. It's not subtle, but it's great. But what makes this mm. more interesting, and Okja also is similar to Snowpiercer in that it has the sort of big bad capitalist characters who are just comically evil yeah. i mean they're intentionally like pantomime villains oh yeah and in snowpiercer it really works like tilda swinton is such a hilarious figure she's so in good. that <laughs> film right and she also plays the sort of equivalent character in okja and it doesn't really work like it's just a little bit too much but like that's fine obviously but it's much more interesting to me to have everyone in this movie kind of just be muddling along right? Because it's not any one person's fault. I mean, Jeff Bezos, sure. But like, the problem is the system, obviously, and not the, these sort of individual, like, middlingly rich people who have a nice house. And the sense of all of them kind of just getting caught up in this bizarre situation is very affecting, I think. And he just is so good at plot that then you're totally along for the ride. And once you do get to that reveal midway through that there's the guy in the basement, it's just like one thing after another. Every single scene is like a crazy elevation from the last in a way that is really pretty riveting. So something we discussed in our Snowpiercer episode as well was sort of the importance of really detailed planning and storyboarding to Bong Joon-ho's, his whole method of filmmaking. And he is pretty much unique. He has a very strange way of making his films that is not necessarily visible to the viewer but behind the scenes is quite odd and it's that he knows like really precisely the way every single shot is going to be in advance and he is like blocking people in the shot with like stand-ins he will basically draw like a comic book storyboard for like everything and give it to the actors so they know where they're going to be and have the sets built to like a really precise manner and then he will film that scene precisely how he's imagining it in his head um, his spatial awareness must be astounding. <laughs> and then he will just like edit it on the set. So he will have that scene basically close to its final form within a day or so of having shot it. 
rather than kind of shooting from multiple angles and later either himself or having an editor sort of pick which angles are best and then knit it all together in like a version of the scene he's envisioned which is like the normal way to make a film <laughs> like this is the kind of film you would make if you were like oh there's only a limited amount of like celluloid film left in the right. world and we have to like ration <laughs> it it's a really wild and impressive way of making a movie and it also makes him like quite an unusual person to work with as an actor because like most film actors are a used to having a bit more kind of leeway in terms of where they're like placing themselves in the shot and b are used to having to do like more takes you know that has like bad and good sides because it's like maybe you want more tries but also maybe it's annoying to have to go and deliver the same line to like three different angles to see who, what they will want later and like if you read interviews with actors who've worked with him like especially Song Kang Ho obviously has worked with him several times so he's really interesting to read about but also actors who've worked with a lot of filmmakers are just like this is like a really wild way of doing things um because you know Bong Joon-ho will be like okay here's a picture of what I want this scene to look like and here's where you're all going to be stand standing precisely so you are like giving the right like light reflections or whatever the fuck you know so we've got the right blocking here for this theatrical set piece but also emotionally you could do like whatever the hell you want because he wants like quite weird performances like it doesn't feel like a movie where he's given really precise direction in terms of like emotion and gesture because his characters are known for being really quirky so it's like an interesting kind of combination of being a control freak and also allowing quite a lot of creative freedom to the performers well, yeah, it's so fascinating because the camera mov movements definitely feel very deliberate, obviously, but the actors are so compelling and odd, as you say, and not stiff or mannered at all, which you might expect to be the results of that method. And the fact that he somehow manages to get that from them is so impressive and then makes the result feel very alive despite the fact that the visuals are so contained. I think Snowpiercer does feel a little bit stiffer. Not the acting, but just like the movie as a whole feels a little bit more... And it's all filmed in like, you know, it's all filmed in train carriages. Well, right, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of regimented. Um, whereas this, even though it's just taking place in these two houses, basically, it somehow doesn't have that feeling to me. I mean, it's just a better movie. But um, yeah, it just feels very dynamic while also clearly being very intentional, which is a pretty good sweet spot to hit if you can manage it. I just watched this horrible movie, The Two Popes, which was nominated for multiple <laughs> Oscars, which I do not recommend. It was, I had to watch it over two days because it was so unbearable. That is directed by um, Fernando Morales, I think, Marias. And his style is to use a lot of handheld cameras, which is fine. Like Succession, which we both love and have discussed, is filmed like that, right? Like that's not a bad approach but it was so interesting to me to think about this movie watching that despite the fact that they have nothing to do with each other because the camera in that was so shaky in a way that didn't appear to be doing anything for the story i think he just wanted it to look like a documentary right which like it, it's, it's stupid like it doesn't we know it's not a documentary it's a fucking fictional film yeah there was about... a point when they were sort of walking from the antechamber into the Sistine Chapel where I kept thinking about the cameraman who was following them and I was like oh it's not a documentary <laughs> <laughs> I mean it just it was just distracting to me 
And it made it feel, obviously, of course, everyone who worked on that movie like worked hard on it it's, there's, these people are professionals but the effect it had on me was like what the fuck are they doing what is the point of this like this feels shoddy and unplanned whereas this is so deliberate and it all feels like it is serving the story he's trying to tell in such an effective way which is obviously what you want out of a movie is just to feel like the director really knows what he's doing and in this case all of that planning generates that feeling of of suspense and feeling like you're on a ride which is why people in my theater were like shrieking when things were happening and so you get the sort of like aesthetic pleasure but also the sense of the sort of dynamic suspense which i think is really hard to pull off at the same time so do you know about the architecture situation because i find this fascinating yes but go on the house in this movie is obviously very distinctive. It's this sort of mid-20th century, sort of minimalist, very chic, uh, clean house. Um, and the movie actually says, oh, it was designed by this architect. Um, and I just sort of assumed this was a real architect, which I think a lot of you as well. It's a fictional architect and the entire house was built and designed with the film in mind. The production designer is Lee Ha-jun and this person is a genius. <laughs> um, obviously it was kind of a collaboration yes. between him and the director, but the way they sort of envisioned this house was entirely designed around the types of shots that Bong Joon-ho wanted to include in the film. It is designed with the aspect ratio of the film in mind, which is most obviously seen in kind of the big window that overlooks the garden. You know, they have this big over they have this big rectangular horizontal window and it kind of just looks like a cinema screen and there's loads of really distinctive shots in the movie where people are looking in or out of this window or we're looking in or out of it. And the whole lower floor is kind of very horizontally set out so you can get these widescreen shots of it. And so it's designed both to be kind of this amazing piece of characterization for these wealthy characters. It's a very beautiful set and there's lots of really interesting lighting, which they created by making sure that the house was pointing in the right directions on an outdoor lot. So they would get like the right <laughs> sunshine from the right angle. They were like, okay, before we build this fake house, we have to have this color of sunlight coming in at this time of day. Like it's just nuts to me. But it also is designed with Bong Joon-ho's sort of obsessive storyboarding skills in mind at the same time and I just think this is such an impressive accomplishment it's just fascinating to me we will link to an interview with the production designer in the show notes I mean clearly this should win the Oscar I know that like the Oscars aren't a meritocracy this is something we discuss in our annual Oscars podcast every year production design is like actually one of the slightly more reasonable departments the winners are usually something where you're like yeah that film did have good production design but as with costumes, it's one of those ones where it's like usually a historical drama or a fantasy movie or something where you can really tell that like a lot of stuff has been designed. <laughs> and in this film, I hope that, you know, they have a successful campaign where people go around and explain to everyone that it's not a real fucking house. Because the fact that they designed a house around the aspect ratio of the film is wild. And I love it. <laughs> I'm looking up the nominees for that category this year. Yeah, this year it's the it's the Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 1917 is great. I would I would be like that's reasonable if it wins, but like all four of those movies are basically just like we've done a really good historical drama. And with Parasite, I fe I feel like I've made my argument known to the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was I think one of the two 
or three things that I made a positive noise at when the nominations were being announced, as opposed to constant sounds of distress. The other being that the <laughs> lighthouse got cinematography, which I was not expecting to happen. But yes, they do not often reward contemporary production design. And so this was a huge deal. And the thing it reminded me of most was the production design for Roma last year. Yeah, me too. I was thinking of that too. Yeah, basically recreated this part of Mexico City that has been destroyed in the intervening years and also reconstructed uh, the apartment that Alfonso Cuaron grew up in. And I would imagine from that that they also had the film stuff in mind because there's a similar sense of sort of like horizontal design to that yeah. like they go upstairs and downstairs and pan around a lot but um it's not quite at the same level of like we're deliberately designing this house for these shots because yeah. he's working off of a real thing and the apartment in this movie that the poor family lives in was also designed and built for the movie which obviously isn't as fancy or large as the big house but has a similar quality like the bathroom is very horizontal and like the toilet is up on a um, another level and you'll have shots where like one person is sort of down and higher up. And then when it floods, they're sitting up on the toilet and it's just really, really smart. And the contrast of those two homes obviously is hugely important for the movie. Yeah. I was just really impressed by it. I tried, I didn't know that that was the case when I went into the movie. I kind of assumed the architect was fictional, but it was certainly did not occur to me that they had built this yeah, whole thing from I, scratch. I assumed it was a real house because I kind of, it's it's so immediately kind of eye-catching that you almost think like, wow, they found a really great house. <laughs> kind of like when you watch a movie and you're like, wow, I bet that house belongs to one of the producers or something. Right. <laughs> well, it just is so important for the movie to have that sense of the place as a place and as a desirable location because they're glomming onto this family that lives there, but they're also really infatuated with the house itself. Like at one point the rich family is supposed to like be going camping for a few days. And so they all just move in essentially temporarily and are sort of imagining that they're the rich people who live there, which is obviously about the fantasy of being those people and not having to deal with their circumstances, but it manifests through the house. And so you need to have something physical that's representing all of this in a way that feels compelling enough to be like, yes, I want to live there too. And that's not a house that I would look at and be like, I want that house, but it's so appealing that I think anyone watching it would sort of be like, I get why, you know? this would be a desirable place and the son of the poor family at the end of the movie has this sort of long fantasy about going and buying it partially because his father is now living in the basement but um it's that is also tied to the house as an object as well so it's I mean, people will often be like, the city is a character in the film, which is usually a bullshit thing to say. But in this case, that <laughs> house is definitely a character in yeah. the movie in a way that is really, really effective, I think. We mentioned the Oscar nominations briefly and also we're sort of tangentially mentioning some of the actors in this. Song Kang-ho in particular, who is extremely, extremely famous and has been in a lot of Bong Joon-ho's movies. And um, one of the things that was sort of being discussed 
a lot on Twitter in the wake of those nominations was that no actors from this had been nominated, which is a pattern with the Academy over the years with Asian films. It's just a sort of messy situation because as with all things, there's no one explanation for why a thing occurs. Obviously, racism is a large component here, but also this is a foreign film starring a bunch of actors that people in Hollywood don't know and they like to vote for their friends. And I think the biggest factor, honestly, is just that Neon, which released this movie, had no money. I saw people comparing this to um, Roma. For I mean, people have been comparing this to Roma all year. But um, Marina de Tavira got a nomination for that, which was really exciting. And I think it was Kyle Buchanan who said on Twitter in response to someone, he was like, well, Netflix spent the like GDP of a small country getting her that nomination. And like, Neon just did not have the resources for that at all. Yeah, it's like, who are Neon? They've existed for like three years. Yeah. And they wound up with this this year. They've got Clemency. They've got a couple of the big docs. They've got Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like, they just had way too many movies. Yeah. Like, there's been a lot of kind of conversation about Clemency, which I've not seen because it does not have a UK release date. But there's been a lot of conversation about how that film hasn't received awards recognition and is because Neon doesn't have the money to, like, promote it. They were like, we will put the money into Parasite. So, yes. you know, I mean, I, I saw Clemency at a festival earlier this year. It's not a perfect movie, but it's really great. I would recommend anyone go see it. It's coming out in theaters now, I think. And um, Alfre Woodard is incredible in it, as everyone Yeah, said. people are highlighting that specifically as like an Alfre Woodard performance role. It's like incredible for her specifically. Yeah, Aldous Hodge also plays this supporting character in that who they both should have been I didn't know he was in that. I like him. <laughs> He's amazing in it. They are both so good. But, um, I mean, this happened with A24 and Moonlight. A24 had existed for a couple of years when that happened, but they were less big than they are now, and they're still very small. And they had 20th Century Women that same year also, which, again, is a movie that I would recommend to anyone. One of my favorite films of the last 10 years. And they just were like, we give up. Like, we can't do it. There's, We have nothing else here. We have no money. And so Neon has put all their efforts behind Parasite, and it clearly was effective. It got them six Oscar nominations, which is unprecedented for a South Korean movie because no South Korean movie has ever been nominated for any Oscars, I believe, which is insane, but here we are. But it sadly did not result in any uh, nominations for the cast, I think partially due to racism, partially due to campaign issues, and partially because there isn't, I mean, there is a main character kind of, but it's very much an ensemble film and they're all great. So it's not like you can point to one person and say, oh, well, obviously, yeah, it's got to be him, right? And that's one of the things that makes the movie so good, is that there is not a weak link in the cast at all. They are- and they're all kind of so distinctive, you know, because it's like the way we've been discussing this is like, oh, you've got like the rich family and the poor family and like their characters are so simple that you can literally just describe them in like five words, you know? And I think with the exception of the son of the poor family, um, who's played by Choi Woo-shik, he's playing kind of the, basically the straight man character. It's like he is the introductory figure. And at first you're kind of thinking he's the protagonist and it's really more of an ensemble cast, but like he is actually the least sort of showy figure. And obviously people are going to talk about Song Kang-ho so much because he is just legendary and amazing and everything. And also this is kind of him not playing to type because his characters are very, like quite different, but he is known for playing sort of messy dads (laughs) and he's actually done that several times in like Bong Joon-ho movies specifically he has played several poor messy dads with problems trying to help his kids and fucking up and like he's great 
Uh, but also like the characters, like I mentioned earlier, that I like especially loved in this uh, were the daughter, Park Sodam, played by Park Sodam, who is just hilarious. And the rich wife, who is hilarious for like really different reasons and is playing like basically a comedy role, but sort of a high strung horror movie comedy role. But I think like the breakout character, maybe for a lot of American audiences, is the daughter because she has like the little Jessica jingle, which everyone was fucking like memeing. <laughs> and her character is just like so fun, really a darkly fun character because of all of them, like she is the most amazing, like natural con artist, but she's also sympathetic. And you're sort of at first, it's just really hilarious to see her just like with a finger snap, just like inhabit this new character she's created for herself where she's like, oh, I'm this confident art therapist and I have all these qualifications. And she's just like really meanly preying on the mum's insecurities. And like Morgan said, kind of in the first half of the film, you do feel more sympathetic towards the poor characters. So like it's perfectly sort of timed for the first act of the film that you do want to watch someone who's just like really competent in that classic con artist movie way just like conning the fuck out of someone you don't really respect like that is such a satisfying movie trope and she is just so fun in that role whereas if they put that in the second half it would have been like more dark and upsetting and instead it's like obviously you know as the film progresses the whole relationships get more complicated and it's very surprising towards the end when she is one of the characters who dies because traditionally that would be one of the characters you know that survives you'd kind of expect her to be fine and she just gets this really sudden violent death where her family can't help her and you have kind of the son and the mother as the surviving figures at the end well what's so smart about the way he handles that character is that she is definitely the most gifted con artists of all of them and she she comes in as this art therapist and the young son who she's engaging with is really out of control and the mother is incompetent so she just cannot deal with this child at all and the this young woman like takes him into his room and you don't see what happens but he is just completely obedient to her immediately and I think a dumber movie would have shown them interacting, and this movie does not. Because you don't need to know. That's It's not relevant. You just need to get the joke of, like, she's so hyper-competent at everything that she can even, like, whip this kid into shape But it's also, like, the kid is just, like, a normal misbehaving kid. And it's, like, because this mother does like doesn't fucking understand anything, she's really easy to convince that, A, the kid is, like, a troubled genius, and B, that he's, like, so difficult to handle that you need to hire this really expensive expert to deal with him. And the way I was interpreting that was, like, he just needs, like, the basic structure and, like, discipline, not in, like, a violent way that, like, kids all need. So it's, like, she's got someone who, like, has a sense of authority and she's, like, okay, just do what you're told and then he does it. (laughs) Yeah, he's not presented as, like, actually an abnormal child at all. And part of what is funny is that she's, like, making up this art therapy bullshit and is convincing the mother that he's, like, schizophrenic or something. I mean, it's just absurd. But also, children are unruly. And the fact that she comes in and literally within 10 minutes is just like, I've got this under control is pretty impressive. <laughs> like most people, that's not going to be how that works, but it is the combination of the mom being so incompetent and her being so skilled makes that viable. But again, the fact that you don't actually see it happening is what makes it so funny and you don't need to see it. It's not necessary. And so you have this sense of her being very good at this and 
in the funniest way of all of them in a sort of superficial sense because everyone enjoys hearing that kind of mumbo jumbo being mocked like it's just enjoyable and then i also found the song kang ho stuff where he's engaging with both of the parents of the rich family really really entertaining because he's not as good at it so therefore when he's making the effort it's quite entertaining because he's really going for it because he's like he's really like blunt and there's that hilarious scene where you see him rehearsing his scripted lines with his son (laughs) and kind of the point is that like these rich people are just like very easy to con which is the case because it's like also if you are kind of in the mindset where it's like you can solve problems by paying people. Someone has given you a problem that seems like it can just be solved by paying someone. They've created that solvable problem and it's like, da-da! <laughs> well, like, the dad is intelligent, the rich dad, but he's yeah. just not paying attention. Yeah. So he's... And he's also like, these are household problems, so it's right, like exactly. not his problem. He's easy to fool because he's totally unengaged. And the mom is an idiot. So... They come up with this scheme about the housekeeper having tuberculosis and he has to convince her of this and then she fires her and that's how they get their mother into the house. And that's the speech he's reciting at home and the kids are like coaching him on acting like he's, you know, too over the top. And when he delivers it, it is so absurd like any <laughs> sensible person would be like what the it's fuck really are you happy. saying it's amazing <laughs> and there's nothing better than watching a really amazing actor do like bad acting in a movie you know <laughs> but she completely goes for it because she's an idiot and um it is just oh my god it's so funny it's really really satisfying so the for whole first half of the movie is that stuff and you're just like what a great time and then it turns out that there's a guy living in the basement. <laughs> and then it goes in a different direction and people start getting like killed or assaulted or whatnot, which is a different vibe. I think what works so well about that is the guy who's living down there, who's played by an actor called um, Park Myung-hoon, he's just quite unhinged, which makes sense because he's been living in a basement for years. And then once his wife gets kind of on purpose, kind of accidentally killed by these people, he doesn't give a shit at all. And the contrast between his sort of unhingedness and them trying to pretend like what they're doing is normal is really effective. Because in fact, what they're doing is insane. Like, this is absurd. But they've kind of tricked themselves into thinking that they've just got this great situation set up. Fantastic. And then you kind of go into the basement, right? Which is symbolic on multiple levels. And it's revealed that actually this is totally dysfunctional and horrible. And you can't maintain the sort of fun fantasy anymore, which is how society works. So It's this this very sort of characteristic Bong Joon-ho setup of something which is like an almost slapstick level of really weird comedy and also something that's like a very obvious piece of dark social commentary and kind of escalating to breaking point and also kind of one of the key things that happens in sort of the the final act of the film or just towards the final act is there's this massive flood in the city and it's sort of there to illustrate how precarious their situation still is because on top of the fact that they've just discovered 
that there is these, this person like living in the basement, even though it kind of feels like they've won by getting these fake jobs. They're still living in a half basement, which gets flooded by the floodwater, and then they have to spend their time in a shelter, which is something that also comes up in um, in Bong Joon-ho's disaster movie, The Host, which is like amazing. Great film, also starring Song Kang-ho as a messy dad. And it's sort of just like, even if you feel like you've sort of got like another rung up the economic ladder, there's always something that's going to knock you down one. And it's just kind of the general concept of this being a heist movie, where the heist that you've like achieved is that you've got what most people would consider to be a not very good job because you're basically you're you're someone's servant and that's like that's like the step up and then it's going to be so easy for you to get fired or end up in jail because of your bizarre scam that involves someone living in a basement well what i kept thinking about also is that so the son takes the tutoring job over from a friend of his Mm -hmm. And the friend's going to come back from university. Well, yeah, that was, that's there from the start because like, you know right. that he's going to come back. And it's like, this is definitely a finite thing. But it's like, th- because the whole mindset of the film is just like getting as much as fast as you can because you know something is going to go wrong at some point. But then once you've got somewhere, your mind always just kind of, if you're in that kind of situation, one's mind just does click over into being like, oh, things are fine now. Because like yes. that's how the human brain works. But as the audience, we're like, but the guy's going to come back soon and they're going to all know that you're like a massive bunch of con artists. <laughs> right. Which the movie never addresses, but clearly... Yeah, everything is intentional. <laughs> yeah. So it all blows up anyway, but it wasn't like this was going to be some long-term idyllic situation. Just, just everything about it is so intelligent. I would have ended it, I think it's one shot, one or two shots before the end, but that's my only complaint. That's it. That's that's the one flaw of this movie, is that it goes on for two shots too long. One or two shots too long. There's this sort of fantasy that the son has at the end about buying this house and being reunited with his father. And he makes it very clear that it's only a fantasy and not a real thing, whereas it's pretty obvious watching it that, like, of course, this isn't actually going to happen. And that was literally the only thing where I was like, we know. We understand. Like, you don't need to lay it on this thick. But uh, it's pretty impressive if... I come out of the movie, I'm like, well, I would have cut two shots of that film. And otherwise, perfect. Although I guess they're going to do a miniseries now. Yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that thing was like, part of me is like just, I mean, most of me, all of our initial reactions, because Mark and I were discussing this with some friends, was just like, why, you know, basically it's like Adam McKay, who is a filmmaker I have no respect for, um, it's going to be like co-making an expanded miniseries of the film. So it's not like we're going to do a direct remake in English, but like that's basically kind of how it feels. And it's just like, just watch the fucking movie. But sort of Bong Joon-ho will be involved. He had like loads of ideas that he couldn't fit into the film and he like wants to expand it. I reject this. I Yeah. Absolutely not. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I don't really need to see like expanded miniseries versions of films i'm sure there's examples of ones where i have been like that was good but especially when it's like you take a film that's just like incredible and like really site specific to an overseas location and be like what if we make it like accessible to english language audiences and set it in america and it's like obviously if bong joon ho is involved then it's gonna be good but at the same time i'm just like just watch the fucking movie in korean like you know well also like people are it's a hit I mean, just watch this film instead. If for some reason you made it to the end of this episode without having watched the movie, we obviously highly recommend it. Catch it before the Oscars so you can be... Well, it'll definitely win Best International Film. So we're going to get at least Wang Bang Junho 
acceptance speech, which will be very enjoyable. Oh, he's good. He's good at a speech. Yeah. Watch it before then. If you've already seen it, watch it again. Very good. Thank you all for listening, as always. Uh, If you would like extra content from us, including um, extra Oscar content in the upcoming weeks, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.